Throughout 2018, Brown's Department of Africana Studies has hosted a series of events commemorating the impact and legacy of the year 1968. The events brought scholars and artists from around the world to discuss the importance of that tumultuous year and where we are today, 50 years later. We sat down with visiting experts to discuss dance, reggae, jazz, and the connections between social protest and art. Our first guest is Vicki Meek, who wears a lot of hats. She's an artist, activist, critic, curator, and more. Meek joined us in the studio before leading an interactive program on the tradition of black social dance in the U.S. She started by talking about her own experience way back in 1968, when she was just starting out at the Rhode Island School of Design as a sculpture major. Yeah, in 1967, I uh, enrolled as a freshman at RISD, and uh, I was the only black female in the entire school. Uh, I, there were only two black males, and I didn't like either one of them, so. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very isolated experience. Mm -hmm. Meek remembers witnessing the turmoil of 1968 and feeling alienated from her classmates. And so, you know, it was a, it, it was a very tumultuous time in, this, in the country. And in 1968, when Martin Luther King was killed, um, I freaked out because I was in this environment that was, like, so alien um, and I, you know, I didn't grow up in a poor community. I just was not affluent. You know, my parents weren't rich um, like these folks were. And they, these kids didn't, they didn't have a clue what I was going through because they had no connection whatsoever to my experience. She eventually transferred to a different school, but she continued making art. And she says that in her art, she's always been compelled to address political problems. I can't speak specifically for anybody else, except as an artist, I have always felt that I had a responsibility to use my artistic ability to creatively work on solving problems in, in, in our social arena. Um, but then I was raised in a politically active, um, and I'm talking radical politics, not Democrat, Republicans. My parents were in the Progressive Party. So they were blacklisted during the McCarthy era. Um, and they taught us that we all have a responsibility to the community. Um, and so I, I never saw anything alien about blending my political beliefs with my creation of art. Mm -hmm. um, now, I started as a young artist. It was very in-your-face. You know, this was the 60s, a very in-your-face kind of art. Um, and then as I got older and had my children, um, it really kind of morphed into um, coming at the conversation through a more sort of humanistic way. Um, and then also I, I began to think about what I really wanted to do was to educate African-American people and anybody else that saw the work about the cultural aesthetics of the black diaspora. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of symbolism that comes directly from the African experience, et cetera. And then there's a lot of conversations around social justice issues, but using a kind of spiritual way of approaching the conversation. So it's not so much in your face, symbols, raise fists, whatever, but um, more looking at it from the standpoint of, of what has this done to our humanity mm -hmm. to live in an op oppressive society? Um, what has it done to us as a people in total um, to not acknowledge the humanity of any, you know, black group or whatever. Black social dance was one of the artistic traditions Meek began studying and teaching. 
It has its roots in Africa, but Meek says that among enslaved communities, it developed into a unique art form. Well, um, a lot of people think when we talk about dance and black people that they say, oh, well, you go back to Africa and that's what they did. No, but the dancing in Africa was not what I would consider black social dance. It was done through ritual. It was related to ritual. Um, and so when people were enslaved and brought over here, we began to take elements of the movements, but they became ways of having a communal experience because, of course, we weren't allowed to practice our rituals. Mm -hmm. um, so the black social dance that began to develop, the first thing that I'm going to show them is the cakewalk. The cakewalk is sort of what it sounds like. It's austere, uptight even. The dancers parade around, leaning back, their chins held high. Every movement is exaggerated. Which a lot of people don't recognize this was a really sort of a, a, a spoof on white dancing by black people, but the white people didn't realize that's what they were doing. So, you know, that started it. And then I have a clip of 1914 couples dancing, which if you look at it, you can see the beginnings of what became the Lindy Hop many, many, many years later. The Lindy Hop is a couples dance, and it's a lot faster. The couples swing around, flip over each other, and throw each other into the air. And then I have a 1925 clip of um, uh, Josephine Baker doing the Charleston, which, you know, we Charleston very differently than white folks Charleston. Josephine Baker's Charleston is kind of like the Lindy Hop, but it's a solo dance. The footwork she does is fast and incredibly complicated. Because so much of what our dance was about was improvisation. And the real test was, you know, like how improvisational could you be? You know, how original could you make your steps based on the standard steps? You know, there might be some traditional steps you learn, but then you would then improvise and, you know, hopefully make your steps a lot more intricate than someone else. The tradition of black social dance is really varied, Meek says. These are just a few examples of the dances Meek planned to introduce to her audience. Well, we're going to do the camel walk, we're going to do the boogaloo, we're going to do the popcorn, we're going to do the uh, tighten up, we're going to do, uh, we're all going to do the Madison. Well, what is the Madison? It is the very first line dance. I mean, everybody knows the wobble and the Cuban shuffle and the electric slide. And all. Well, in the 1950s, late 1950s into the early 60s, the Madison was what started that whole trend of you know having a person call out the moves and everybody doing them together and that kind of thing. So we're all going to do the Madison. Racism and segregation meant that for years these dances remained largely contained within black communities. These were not the dances that you necessarily saw on American Bandstand, which we're going to talk about that because, you know, American Bandstand originated in Philadelphia and was segregated. Mm. So blacks weren't even allowed to do that show. Mm -hmm. When you began to see black people was when they moved to Hollywood and, you know, they started broadcasting out of um, L.A. And, of course, it was integrated in, in L.A. and you began to see black people on the show. But prior to that, it was a very segregated dance experience in Philadelphia. For her program at Brown, Meek had the participants actually do all the dances, or shake a tail feather, as she put it. 
She says feeling the dances is crucial to understanding their legacy. The more you do, the more you feel. And it's, you know, it's very easy to sort of listen. And I don't even know how much people take in after Mm -hmm. a few minutes of hearing blah, 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 blah. You know, it's like, what are you really getting out of that versus if you're doing it? You're embodying the experience. Yeah. You know, you can't. I could talk about dance, but what does that mean if you can't feel the movement? This is especially important now, Meek says, as these dances are disappearing. She's found it hard to teach the dances to children. It's it's funny because (laughs) one of the reasons why I was showing my children at the center the dances that we did is because we found them incapable of doing, they couldn't skip, they couldn't do certain things, they definitely couldn't double dutch. I mean, that was just... Could, they couldn't do that at all. They didn't understand any of that. Um, and they really didn't know how to do the kind of footwork that we did. So we were going to teach them, you know, and they were having, they were struggling. So it's also cultural preservation in a way. I think it is. I think it's very much about cultural preservation because, you know, I mean, black people are the only people in this country who people always say, well, why are you always looking back? You know, you know, to forget. It's like, Everybody else is allowed to preserve their culture and be proud of that and not be charged with some sort of you know, subversive reason. We're the only people who people question, well, why do you want to know that? You know, because we need to know it. Our next guests are Ebo Cooper and Dermot Hussey. They came to Watson to talk about reggae's role during the political upheavals of 1968. Hussey began the interview by talking about the connections between music and social protest. Well, in any society, music is a a mirror of the time, of any given time in the society's development. So music is constantly reflecting social conditions. And I think that's always been its history from the very beginning. I mean, 1968 in the American context is very important because the music was being fueled by a lot of social events. The Vietnam War, the Black Power Movement, um, all of those things were stimulating a response on behalf of the people using what in kind of last resort is the one thing we have, in a way, to fight back the popular music. But as Cooper explains, popular music in Jamaica wasn't always social protest. A lot of Jamaican popular music was also a way for working class people to just relax and have fun. Because uh, the Saturday night is a Saturday night. And there are times when, as I say, you don't want anything too heavy for the head. It was all about dancing, um, intimate conversation, trying to find a partner in life, all the things that young people do especially, that was definitely there. And that was driven by the sound system culture even before we were independent because the music evolved primarily at that time as dance expression for the poorer class of people. However, now you have the people's attention. There are things you're not learning in school. There are things happening in the world that the media isn't carrying. So what a bit of time to then to get that in there so that the information could get out unsung. Uh, in Jamaica, a lot of the stuff about 
um, African rights and history started to emerge in the music first. Several styles of pop music emerged after Jamaica gained independence from Britain and reflect the turbulence of that period. You know, the first urban style was ska. Then, as Ibo intimated, you had a period of rude boy music before you had rock steady. And one of the things that people um, perhaps didn't understand that there was so much expectations on the part of Jamaicans. So that ska was a kind of euphoria. And then after people realized that, well, independence wasn't really a magic wand. (laughs) Reality set in. And so the music immediately reflected that. And that is why, for instance, there's a song which is really one of the greatest songs that came out of that whole Jamaican experience. I've Got to Go Back Home by Bob Andy. I've got to go back home It's it's a very personal song because when he created this song, he was crying. Um, He went to the studio with... The lyrics are spontaneous, actually. You know, and it's, it's a classic. And it also kind of reflects that feeling of the Rastafarian feeling of wanting repatriation because the social context in which he was currently living in was not delivered. After reggae emerged in Jamaica, it soon became a worldwide phenomenon. Cooper says that's because the music has the ability to speak to working-class people almost anywhere. It's a form of political resistance. So here come some people from not only Jamaica, but from one of the poorest areas in Jamaica. Not with guns or money, but with a sound that somehow the working-class people in every country felt on their soul as here comes something speaking for us. That is what I meant. And I can quote an interview with a former commissioner of police. I did a radio program and I interviewed him. And he said he went to Argentina and he was in a disco. And they started to play Bob Marley's music. And the dance floor was empty until that music was played. And then the floor was full of people. And he said he was amazed because he was thinking that the language barrier... And he spoke to somebody from Argentina and said, what is it about this music? And the man said, this music embodies my struggle. And interestingly enough, he said to me, being an upper-class Jamaican financially, he said, you know, I must admit that I didn't respect Bob Marley and his music before this. But here I am in Argentina feeling a sense of national pride. (laughs) You understand? So that's the kind of power that the music has. And the Pope of Rome at the time came to a reggae concert. He went to Bob Marley's concert. I don't think there's ever been another Pope who had gone to a reggae concert in history. I didn't know that. That's yes. Amazing. And so how does that compare to, to today? How is music being used um, for sort of social and political expression today? A very good artist to listen to is Chronics. Chronics has a relatively recent release, which speaks to now in the digital world. And I love the play on words. He says he does it for the love and not for the likes. 
<laughs> you nice. see? There you go. I think that, you know, yeah. he's, he's an artist. And you know, a lot of the artists now, how many hits, how many likes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and so he's kind of critical of the other artists who are doing it, as you said, for social media for exposure. The for the likes. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Is he Jamaican? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I would say he's the biggest thing now. He's a kind, of, kind of the 21st century Bob Marley, if any man ever speaking. <laughs> well, yeah. I will certainly. Yeah, he's loved that. across the board. Yeah. And, um, but you have songs like They Don't Know, you know. Um, do you mind if I bring in my friend? Can no, I? Sure. Serena, please come forward. At this point in the interview, Cooper asks Serena, another musician traveling with Cooper and Hussey, to sing the song. She is the young lady who sang with us. She's a graduate of the Manly College, and she has a new album coming out. And I'm going to ask her if she can just do a little piece of They Don't Know oh, for me. Oh, please. Please. They Don't Know. They Don't Know. They see me smile, but they don't know how I feel inside. Only he knows, only John knows, yeah. They see me smile, but they don't know how I feel inside. Oh my God, thank you so much. Only you Reggae's global appeal has led to a huge number of reggae bands from outside Jamaica. Hussey says that while some people argue that reggae should only be played by Jamaicans, he thinks it's more complicated than that. So you can't, there's a nuance that Jamaicans will always have because they are Jamaican and it's peculiar to them. But that I don't think is still an important criteria. The fact that because Bob Marley said this music is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and fine. It's right, people. Reggae is Jamaica's gift to the world. That's beautiful. And um, one of my friends from Aswad, he was asked by Prince Charles, so what is this reggae music? And he turned to him and said, your reward for slavery. Because basically, I keep quoting this taxi driver in New York. He said, you guys' music is about serious things all the time, and yet you're always laughing and joking. And I said, yes, because all we have been fighting for is our right to party. <laughs> That's all. To end the interview, we asked Serena to sing one more song. Hey everyone, my name is Serena, and this is called Bad Guy. I don't wanna die, is the cry of Mr. Bad Guy. When I next bad guy out for Dunham. No, I don't wanna die. Is the cry of Mr. Bad Guy when I next bad guy outfit on him? But what a man don't want for himself, no, no, he shouldn't want it for someone else. Our final interview was with the legendary Boston jazz DJ Eric Jackson. He came to Brown to talk about jazz during the social upheaval of 1968. Jackson remembers witnessing the events of that year as a college student. Jackson was a college student when he witnessed the events of that year. It was 1968 when it came to uh, BU. And it was an interesting time. Uh, there's certainly, especially on a campus like BU, and I'm sure on, on this campus too here at Brown, uh, 
uh, the counterculture movement was very active at that time. So you had the uh, uh, anti-war, uh, people concerned about the uh, ecology, all of those kinds of things going on. And also, to me, the counterculture represents, uh, represented um, uh, mostly young white kids who were rebelling against some of the values that their parents held. Um, so all of those things were active. But you know, I always say, well, but I was a middle-class black kid. So I certainly was aware of those things. But at the same time, uh, I was very much aware of those issues that were affecting African-Americans uh, at that time, the, the riots, um, the civil rights movement, you know, we, we watched that on TV with interest, you know. So I, I sort of was walking in two, two worlds, uh, you could say, uh, you know. I came to Boston right after Martin Luther King had been assassinated. So there were a lot of thoughts on our minds. Um, a lot of us were questioning uh, why are we in a predominantly white university? Um, what is the education uh, going to be like for an African-American in this environment? And there were some classes where I thought I ran into problems because I dis disagreed with the professor. He would say, they say things that I would say, well, no, I, I don't agree with that. It doesn't sound right for me as an African-American. He says he also related differently than his white classmates to a lot of the protest music that was popular at the time. The music was, uh, was very important, but uh, again, uh, coming from my background, I was very much interested in African-American music and trying to learn about this whole spectrum uh, of the music. I was never a rocker well, for a hot minute. Uh, you know, I think I bought two Beatles albums, and I, I never bought any other rock albums other than, it was, I think it was Sgt. Pepper and I can't remember the other one. Uh, but um, I was very much, I grew up in a house where my father was a huge jazz fan, so that's what I grew up listening to on that side. But I also listened to the same thing that most uh, teenage uh, African Americans were listening to at that time, Motown and all of those kinds of things. And uh, I think I became uh, a touch early on, touched early on, when I started thinking about the plight of a number of African-American artists, how uh, many of them had, uh, had, had gone through so many hardships. Many of them, uh, I didn't think, were getting the recognition that they deserved. Uh, I, think, I thought in many cases, in many different musical forms, they had been the innovators, uh, the originators, and they weren't even known. People didn't even know who they were. Um, and I think that bothered me a lot, which has something to do with why I decided to get on the radio. As a radio DJ, Jackson used his platform to spread the kind of music that moved him, to give it a wider audience. Certainly, when I first started on radio, I, I definitely very consciously had that, uh, those thoughts in my mind that, uh, 
you know, I want people to hear uh, this music. I, I wanted people to, uh, as I used to say to myself even, uh, I want them to hear the beauty that I'm enjoying. Jackson says that in 1968, jazz was going through some changes. Miles Davis, who I've been a huge fan of ever since I probably was a teenager, um, just before 68, I believe it was 67 or so, he, uh, although I didn't hear this record till 1968, I think, he put out a record called um, Miles in the Sky, which I always thought in the back cover looked like some sort of psychedelic design on the back cover. I think it's uh, heads, his head uh, in multicolors or something like that on the back. And uh, on there was a tune on there called Stuff, and Herbie Hancock is playing electric piano on there. That was new. Electric pianos were not being used very often uh, at that time. So, you know, when I heard that, it was like, oh, this is really different. Because just about that time, he began um, using what are sometimes called jazz rock rhythms, but many of them are actually funk rhythms. Um, and that would take the music in a whole different direction from that point on. While jazz from the 60s isn't often considered protest music, Jackson says the genre was deeply influenced by the politics of the time. I think if you go back... Um, in uh, to the 1960s, at least, you will f you will start to find there were jazz musicians who were um, writing tunes like Selma March, um, Freedom Rider. Mm -hmm. uh, there was others who were recording spirituals, which, to me, in many cases, those are freedom songs. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's it's continued, perhaps even grew uh, more since 1968. I actually. Uh, went through a number of discographies uh, from record companies uh, from the year 1968. And there were a number of things. It wasn't a huge number, but I believe after that, the number uh, for jazz musicians began to uh, increase. Um, and the musicians, they also in jazz, a lot of musicians started using vocalists, even, even not... Uh, not just in the, in the role of uh, sing a verse or two, uh, you know, and, but as, as a major part of the song. And many of those songs contained uh, messages mm -hmm. in their songs. So mm -hmm. I think the, the role has, uh, has increased. Um, I was just listening to something yesterday by the trumpeter Keon Harold, and he has a tune called uh, MB... Lament, I think it may be Lament MB. I think it's MB Lament, uh, which is for Mike Brown. Jackson says that during the 60s, a lot of jazz musicians began to focus more on issues of spirituality. For me personally, uh, John Coltrane touched my life with his spiritual message. Uh, it was, as I've often said, a kind of revival um, of spirituality. Love Supreme. Right. Yes, yes, yes. I, when I heard Love Supreme, 
I used to carry the record around with me, and if you'd invited me to your house or to your dormitory, probably after I sat there for a few minutes, I would say, hey, could you put this on, please? Because so. <laughs> you just needed to hear it. Well, yeah. not, no, or not you only were did I need to hear it, everybody else Oh, got it. it. Oh, interesting. Interesting. <laughs> that's a beautiful story. Well, okay, so that's my next question. Um, what, so something in you when you heard Love Supreme was changed, altered, and so many people listen to you. Can you articulate what it is about jazz that is so special? You, you know, I think that uh, uh, jazz has the power um, to reach within someone and touch them in a uh, much deeper way than what most uh, pop music can do, which is not to say pop music can't reach someone. But, but I people think, don't get quasi-religious about pop music. There's something almost m magical or mystical about jazz, and I just don't... I think that's, that, that is uh, part of the power of the music. I think there is that there is some music that just strikes you uh, immediately. There's some things you don't need anything else except to to hear it. On November first and second, twenty eighteen, Africana will partner with the Watson Institute to convene a symposium titled "1968: The Local and the Global." To find out more. Check out the description of this episode on our SoundCloud page. <laughs>